0: Thank you so much, Pastor. Let me invite you to open your Bible tonight to the book of Ruth in chapter number 2, the Old Testament story of Ruth, chapter 2, and I'd like to begin reading from Ruth, chapter 2, uh, and verse number 2. What a wonderful day to be with God's people at Grace Baptist Church. My, I just uh, enjoyed the good fellowship this morning, this afternoon, and and uh, <clears throat> also just appreciated so much the wonderful singing. My, the choir works so hard. Uh, you know, you can hear choirs, and then sometimes you know, well, that was thrown together in a few minutes. and. Uh, yet the the choir does such a wonderful job, beautiful voices, and the blend is so nice. And and uh, but most of all, most of all, far more importantly, the music is music that honors and magnifies the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, when somebody sings, a choir sings, in the specials that we've heard this morning from the gentleman, and, and again tonight from Ms. Hannah, it's just uh, uh, you, you just when they're done, you say, what a great Savior we have. And if it's what a great performance was done, something's wrong. If it's what great singers there are. Something's wrong, but if we do this right, when it's all said and done, we bow our head and say, what a great Savior is my Savior. And thank you for singing music that exalts and honors the Lord Jesus Christ, but also thank you for the effort and the time that you put into it to magnify Him, and it certainly shows. And and, uh, my, if we're going to do this for Christ, it ought to be our hearts and our lives, and we ought to do it correctly, do it with our energy for Him. Thank you so much for wonderful music, exalting and honoring my Savior. Tonight, if you have your Bible to the book of Ruth in chapter number two, uh, you know, when we come to Ruth chapter two, you could not have a greater contrast. It is the story of two ladies. First, of course, we have, well, the lady Ruth, and she is referred to again and again as Ruth the Moabitess. We can't get over the fact that Ruth doesn't look like one of us. She doesn't live here. She's not of us. She has come from that pagan dirty land of Moab. Ruth the Moabitess. And then, of course, in Ruth chapter 2, we have another lady, a lady by the name of Naomi. And what a difference. When we come to the end of chapter 1, the last we heard from Ruth, she was standing at the crossroads of her life. And for all time, she put it so perfectly. I will go where God wants me to go, and I will live where God wants me to live. The God of the Bible is my God, and the people of God are my people. And to make sure everybody understood, she said, where God wants me to die, that is where I'm going to die. This is not a temporary decision. This is not for the next few years of my life. You know, I've heard, Brother White, what is very popular in these days is for people to say, I'll give the Lord a year or two of my life. I'll go on a missions journey to South America for a few months. And if I give the Lord a couple months of my life, won't that do No, no, we're Bible-believing, independent Baptist people, not Mormon people. This is not temporary. This is not just a few months of my life. The God of the Bible wants entire lives. He wants us to say, for the rest of my life, until I die in the will of God. I mean, it is classic, isn't it? You just can't preach it enough. You can't quote it enough. You can't meditate on it enough. It is the outline for a godly Christian life. It is Romans 12, 1 and 2 in the Old Testament. It is the will of God personified. When a lady says, I will give him my life, my life for the will of God. But you know, when you come to the end of Ruth chapter 1, there's another lady. I'm afraid as Naomi comes home to the city of Bethlehem after more than 20, some 20 years in a distant place, she returns home and it is nothing but anger and bitterness. And now the Bible tells us as the city surrounds her, and and uh, my, when you read those verses, they're so tragic. Her friends of days gone by kind of say, Is that you, Naomi? Is that you, Naomi? And she may well have been veiled, but but you know, it's also possible that her face is showing the ravages of her sin, and now nobody can recognize her. Perhaps she looks older than she really is. And when the crowd is gathered, well, it's one of those most well, sorry. It's one of the most heartbreaking speeches in the Bible. A woman who has done it her way and not God's way says, "Call me not Naomi, call me Mara. I am no longer sweet, and I am no longer pleasant. It's the story of a woman who turned Mara. Mara means bitter. A woman that had become embittered and angry. What a contrast. You couldn't have a bigger contrast. A woman with a spiritual smile on her face. A woman who says, my life for the will of God. A woman with the smile of God upon her. And another woman that has run from the word of God. And now her life has turned bitter and sour and angry. It brings us to Ruth chapter number 2 and verse number 2. Uh, so if you're able tonight, could I invite you to stand together with me as we go to the Bible and from Ruth chapter 2 and, and verse number 2, uh, the Bible tells us, and Ruth, and you may have missed this earlier, so the Lord reminds us, Ruth the Moabitess. She is not one of us. She does not look like us. She does not sound like us. She is not from here. Ruth the Moabitess said unto Naomi, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn, after him in whose sight I shall find grace. And she said unto her, Go, my daughter. And she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and her hapless light on the part of the field belonging unto Boaz, who was of the kindred of Elimelech. My father, we pray for your help now as we open the words of our God. Lord, I pray as we look at this wonderful testimony of this lady Ruth, How she stands at the crossroads of life and gives her life for the will of God. Oh Lord, I pray for men, ladies, young people in this room tonight. I pray for Grace Baptist Church that you would find soldiers of the cross. People willing to invest their life in what wilt thou have me to do. Now my Lord, for someone who may well have walked in this place tonight and they have never been saved. I pray you will help them understand that salvation is not by works of righteousness. It is only by the precious blood of Christ. What a wonderful night to be saved. So we ask for your help and your blessing. In the strong and mighty name of Jesus we come. Amen. Thank you so much. Please be seated. My life for the will of God. I will go where God wants me to go. I will live where God wants me to live. God is now my God, the God of Israel, and God's people are now my people. You can almost hear her breaking out into song. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. You can almost hear her say, the old friends and the old family, the old ways and the old religion, they are nothing but a distant memory in the land of Moab. And you can almost hear her say, if any lady be in Christ, she is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The story of a woman that has given her life for the will of God. And you know, as you read Ruth one. 16 and 17, you can't help but smile and you can't help but be reminded even 3,300 years later what a special thing it is when somebody gives their life for the will of God. I mean, we sang a group of songs tonight that remind us there is joy in serving Jesus, and indeed there is. There is nothing better than a life lived for the will of God. Oh, the world certainly has a different philosophy. They're going to say tonight, run where you get the most money, run where you get the biggest toys, run where you're going to get the most stuff, or more likely, go the path that is going to make you happy. You know, it's an amazing thing, but some of us grandparents can kind of look around, can't we, and... And the gray hair of wisdom tells us that the most miserable people in the world are people that are trying to make themselves happy. Have you ever noticed that? They're the ones that need to be in the psychiatrist's office twice a week. Oh, no. No, the world says make yourself happy. Live for number one. But in this building tonight, the happiest person. In this building tonight, the blessed person. In this building tonight, the one who knows real joy is the one who has invested their life in living for the will of God. There is something mighty great about people living for God's will. I was preaching in my home country, the United States, in a place called Macomb, Mississippi. As you might guess, Macomb, Mississippi's in the deep south. It was a Sunday morning. The pastor before the preaching service had an 80-year-old gentleman visiting the service, a friend of his, and he asked him if he wouldn't stand up and give his testimony. That 80-year-old man, 80-year-old man, stood up in front of the people in that little Baptist church, and with a smile on his face, he said, at the age of 60, I had retired from my job, a good job, living in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And he said, I was successful for all of my years, had a good retirement. And and like most 60-year-old men that retire, I thought I had a life of ease in front of me. But he said, one day in my local church, at a missions conference, God began to speak to my heart. And you know, I was ready to get the form, Brother White, and fill it in for another year. I was ready to check my name on the envelope. I wanted to help missionaries go around the world. I was certainly active and busy giving to Faith Promise Missions, and yet the Lord impressed my heart in that missions conference. He didn't want my name on an envelope. He wanted my heart. A 60-year-old man said, I walked down the aisle, I got down on my knees, and I wasn't just going to say, Lord, what wilt thou have me to give? but I was willing to say, Lord, where wilt thou have me to go? And he stood there that day and said, at the age of 60, God called me to the mission field. You know, that would be impressive enough. But what happened next? Well, it floored me. A 60-year-old man who spent his life in Hattiesburg, Mississippi now, and if you know anything about the United States, we're talking about the Deep South, so it wasn't snowing there today. A man who spent 60 years of his life says, God didn't only call me to the mission field that day. God called me to Siberia. I mean, that is even worse than Vancouver, I believe. And <laughs> The Lord called them to Siberia. He stood there, and for the next 10 minutes, he had story after story. He said there were baptismal services. We had to take a chainsaw and cut a hole in the ice so we could baptize people. I mean, with the biggest smile you ever see from an 80-year-old man. He said, for the last 20 years, I've been serving the Lord in Siberia. I thought I was going to have a fun retirement. He said, I didn't know how much fun I was going to have. There was just something special about a lady from Moab who stands at the crossroads of life and says, my life for the will of God. There is just something special about a 60-year-old man who falls at his knees at a missions conference and says, my life for the will of God. I just returned from preaching in December in Papua New Guinea. Uh, I had the privilege to be with a missionary named Gary Keck. I believe you support his son. Wonderful young man doing a great, great work for the Lord in that place. The time before, a few years ago, I had been with Brother Keck, We were holding services, revival meetings in a local church and and in a place called Wamdumi, a little village where they had started a church. One night after the service, my friend introduced me to a pastor, a Papua New Guinean pastor. He introduced him as Pastor Levi. I'm sure he gave me his last name, which I, A, can't remember, and B, if I could remember, I couldn't pronounce it anyhow. so, So we'll just call him Pastor Levi. And he told me, Pastor Levi, had come to the service that night. He had walked from his village. I said, well, Brother Levi, it's good to meet you. I said, where is your church? Where do you serve the Lord? He said, you see that mountain over there? I had to say no. inside, I said, no. I said, sure, you know, because, well, look, you live here. I live in Arizona. We all know what mountains are. You know, some guy, for their mountain is what you and I might call a hill. So what he was pointing to was a hill, but he called it a mountain, so you let it go. He said, you see that mountain? I said, I sure do, Brother Levi. Is your village up that mountain? He said, no. But he said, if you were to climb to the top of that mountain, you would look over and see another mountain. I said, oh, is your village on that second mountain? He said, no. But he said, if you were to climb that second mountain, you got to the top, you could look and see another mountain. I was getting tired of playing the game, so I didn't say anything. He said, halfway up that third mountain, there's a little village called Bitoi. And that little village, God has allowed me to pastor a people and a local church. You know, with a smile on his face, Pastor Levi, who by the way had walked four hours to get to the service that night, Pastor Levi told me that little village church on that third mountain out in the middle of the jungles of Papua New Guinea, they had been used of the Lord to establish and plant two more local churches. I got to tell you, folks, there's just something special about the will of God. It may be a lady standing at the crossroads between two lands. It may be an old timer on his knees at a missions conference in Mississippi. It may be a preacher out in the jungles of Papua New Guinea. But there is something special about someone living for the will of God. A few summers ago, I was preaching in Beijing, China. There I met a gentleman, I'll just call him Pastor Jimmy tonight, and and God has used him to do some mighty works for the Lord. In the course of conversation, I said, Brother Jimmy, how did you get saved? And he told me as a young man in college, he was studying for a medical career, had a wonderful life laid out in front of him, but that's when the gospel of Jesus Christ arrested his heart. I heard the gospel, he trained in the word of God, was wonderfully saved, and God called Brother Jimmy to preach. He was willing to turn his back on his medical career, began to train with a missionary. And as we sit comfortably here tonight in a beautiful building, somewhere in the middle of China, there's Brother Jimmy serving God, building local churches for him. He told me God was blessing the work and the church grew to almost 300 adults with many more children. He said that's when the problems began. The authorities came into our service a number of times. Brother Jimmy looked at me and he said, five times I've been in jail for preaching the gospel. I was awfully glad the next question out of his mouth was not, Brother White, how many times have you gone to jail for preaching the gospel? He said, five times I've been in jail for preaching. The last time the authorities interrupted our Sunday morning service, they didn't only arrest me, they arrested my wife as well. Brother Jimmy said, you know, it took a it took a beating, I guess, from the Lord. I, it took some time in the jail to go to the book of Acts and realize what God wanted his people to do. So we took our church of 300 people, divided into six or seven congregations, scattered around our city, and why we still gather together Sunday after Sunday preaching the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, for a guy who's been to jail for Jesus five times, he sure had the smile of God on his face. He sure had joy in serving jesus i'll never forget brother jimmy telling me about his christian school he said we have a a christian school and of course we are not approved by the government of china he said if some parents want to enroll their children in our school brother jimmy said i sit down with them and very carefully explain that we are not approved of by the government so if you enroll your child in our school there will be no scholarships There will be no opportunities to move on. If you put your child in our Christian school, it will be because you want them to learn the Bible, not the propaganda of a government. He stopped for a minute and then he smiled and he said, "And, and we have 50 students in our school. I'll tell you, there is just somebody, something special about a man, a woman who lives for the will of God and be it a Moabitess who says, don't know what it costs, but all I know is I love the one under whose wings I have come to trust. I love the one who spread out his wonderful saving wings, and I'm there safe and sound. Be it a man who gets on his knees as a 60-year-old and says, The rest of my life for the will of God. Be it a fell out in the jungles of Papua New Guinea. Be it a man in a prison cell in the middle of China. There is something special about people who live for the will of God. Later this year, I'll be preaching with a friend of mine in what I believe is the second, maybe the third largest city in Peru, uh, Huancayo, Peru. The pastor of the church, a wonderful young man named Christian Soto. Last time I was there, I said, Brother Christian, give me your testimony. And he said, My, I grew up in the slums of Lima, Peru. Our family was a very poor family. But you know, miracle of miracles, I got a scholarship. I studied hard. And when I graduated from one of the leading universities in Lima, well, I graduated with a degree as a systems engineer. In front of me was a contract from the Peruvian government. Christians said, all I had to do was take a pen, sign my name to the dotted line, and I would be paid 1.6 million Peruvian dollars a year. I know we can say, well, you know, that could be a little, that could be a lot. Well, at a time, 1.6 million Peruvian dollars would have been 500,000 American dollars. He said, a graduate growing up in the slums of Lima, Peru. I had enormous pressure to sign that contract. My family told me to sign it. I wanted to sign it. Every part of me wanted to sign it. I, I would do what I love. I'd be an engineer working all across the country of Peru. But he said, you know, the Lord had saved me, and I knew that God was calling me to preach. He said, there was a struggle going on inside my heart. I said, well, Christian, how did that thing get determined? You know what he told me? He said, I was reading in John chapter number one. I was reading of that moment in time when John the Baptist gave his life to serve the Lord he loved. And he said, what captured me was where John in John chapter number one was saying, I read that text. I read how that man was saying, I just want to spend my life as a voice for him. And verse spoke to my heart and Christian said, for the rest of my life, I want to be a voice for the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, the pressure was enormous. But I turned down that scholarship. I began to train one-on-one with that missionary. And tonight he stands at a Baptist church in Huancayo, Peru, preaching the Word of God. I'll tell you, folks, there's just something special. There's just something wonderful about somebody who says, I don't want what this world offers. I'd rather seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And that may be a lady at the crossroads. That may be an old man at the altar at a missions conference. Hell, that may be Somebody in the middle of Beijing, China. That may be an old timer in Papua New Guinea. It may be a young man in Juan Peru. But when a man and when a lady say, my life for the will of God. When they say, I will go where God wants me to go. And I will live where God wants me to live. The God of the Bible is my God. And the people of God, that's my crowd. For the rest of my life, I will serve him till I die where he wants me to die. Say what you want. But there's something special about people who live for the will of God. So as glorious as Ruth 1.16 is, as special as Ruth 1.17 is, when we come to verse number 2 of Ruth chapter 2, we have that amazing conflict. We have that great collision where the will of God meets up with an empty stomach. And for all the glory of Ruth 1.16 and 17, well, she wakes up in Bethlehem hungry. And so in verse number 2, it is Ruth, and you might have missed this earlier, she's the Moabitess. Ruth, the Moabitess, said unto Naomi, let me now go to the field. Notice that word is singular. Let me go to the field and glean ears of corn. Well, in Bible times, outside of a place like Bethlehem, the city, there would be one massive field. A huge field where they did their farming inside that field, families would have plots of ground. What they would do is take stones and boulders and and they would set off the ground that belonged to their family. So there was one field where everybody in the community would go, but inside the field, there were different plots of land that belonged to the family. So Ruth said, I'm going to go out of the city gates now, and I'm going to go to the great field that belongs to Bethlehem. I know it's massive. I know it's large. Perhaps in that field, there's somebody that'll help me. And you notice the word of God tells us she was going to glean, not to reap. There's a big difference between reaping and gleaning. In Bible times, when the harvest was ready to come in, well, the, the reapers would go at first. They would reap the best of the crop, and they were required by the law to, the Bible describes it as rounding off the corners. Everybody had a rectangular or a square plot. And so God said, if you have land, I want you to keep the corners rounded. It's where we get that expression. And that way the poor, but especially the widows, they could go. And after the reapers had gone through, they could go and find something to eat. I find that interesting. God never said, have somebody stand on a street corner with a sign. But what God did say is, I want even the poorest of widows to know what it means to get up in the morning and eat by the sweat of their brow. Folks, it is not dishonorable to work. It's right to work. It's not a bad thing to work. It's a good thing. And the Bible tells us that they were required by law to leave some grain in the corners so the widows could have something to eat. You know, the Bible tells us they had to. It was the law. But that doesn't mean they like to. Kind of like the speed limit. You know, the government says that's what you drive. That doesn't mean everybody likes it. Well, the law said you round off the corners. But you know, that morning as Ruth the Moabitess heads to the field, she's got to be thinking this isn't going to be as easy as it sounds. In fact, in verse number two, she says it all, doesn't she? She said, let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him. And here's what she says, in whose sight I shall find grace. You know, if we could go back in time to that very morning and say, Ruth, what do you need? And Ruth the Moabitess would shake her head and say, oh, I am hungry. I need something to eat. We don't even know where the next meal is coming from. Being a widow and being a Moabitess widow, living in the land of Bethlehem, you can't imagine how enormous the odds are stacked up against me. And if we could go back in time and interview her, and we would say, Ruth, what do you need? You know, she might laugh a little bit. She might get a silly little smile, and and she would say, oh, I've got to tell you, what I need is somebody in whose sight I shall find grace. She said, I'm going to need somebody to be extraordinarily kind to me. I mean, they don't like giving the food anyway away. They don't like giving the business to the widows anyhow. But for a Moabitess, I mean, Ruth's walking out of the house that morning thinking, I don't know how I'm going to eat. As she walks out of the mouth with that prayer on her lips, you know, that prayer a lot of people pray, but they've never meant, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. You know, we kind of just pray those words, but there are people that know what that means. There are people in Bible times that would wake up saying, I don't know how the food's on the table tonight. Lord, I've got a a, a, wife. Lord, I've got some little babies. I've got some mouths to feed, and I need you to give me today my daily bread. And that's what Ruth would be saying. Oh, Lord, I need somebody that's going to show me grace. I need somebody that's going to look at a Moabitess widow. I need somebody to look at somebody like me. What I need is grace. I need someone to show me grace. And in verse number two, Naomi, she said unto her, go my daughter. That's heartbreaking, isn't it? There is no word of warning. At the end of the chapter, we're going to discover that what Naomi tells Ruth to do is extremely dangerous. But there is no warning. And by the way, God expected the widows, and Naomi was one of those widows, to go to the field. You know, she didn't have a problem the day before standing there with everybody surrounding her, moaning and complaining for her miserable life. But God wanted her to get up the next morning and go out in the field and do something about it. And she was more than happy to let somebody else do all the work. There's some real problems here. So the Bible says that without a warning, she goes. And in verse number three, she, that's Ruth, she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers. Could I just stop there for a second? And just one more time, if I can impress upon us tonight, the enormity of life that is against Ruth right here. Right there in the middle of verse number 3, nothing is going right for her. Why, she has already lost her husband. She had been married for 10 years, and there was no son. She had decided to live for the will of God, and the first Christian she knew ignored her and tried to talk her out of it. She had come all the way back to Bethlehem and for all the beauty that you and I know about Ruth and we love her story, the truth of the matter is halfway through verse number three, you could not find a more hopeless or helpless situation. I mean, this woman is at the grace of the entire city of Bethlehem. She is from the wrong country. She's got the wrong accent. She doesn't look like everybody else. Everything is so stacked against Ruth the Moabitess that she is going to need somebody who will be extraordinarily kind to her if she is even going to be able to find a bite to eat that day. In the middle of verse number three, everything is against her. She has no friends, she has no food she is lonely, she is destitute, she is helpless, she is hopeless. Folks, as a widow living in a place like Bethlehem, when we are in the middle of verse number two, we could not imagine a scenario where a woman was in bigger trouble. Nothing is on her side except for one little thing. Would you notice that one little thing? It's found in verse number three. With the whole world stacked against her, she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and it's the next three words that are on her side. The Bible says, and her hap." That's all she's got. She doesn't have any money. She doesn't have any food. She doesn't have any friends. She doesn't have anywhere to go. Nobody wishes she were there. Everybody is against her. They've got all kinds of racial hatred for her. I mean, there are a million things stacked against her. There are the hunger pangs in her stomach. The woman is hungry. I mean, to tell you, there is nothing going for her. I mean, we could list the, make the list a mile high of all the circumstances of life that have turned themselves against this widow, that have turned themselves against this Moabitess. And while we weary with a big smile, want to point out how beautiful it is when she stands at the crossroads. The truth of the matter is her decision has brought her to the place where the whole world is against her. Nothing is on her side except for that little phrase and her hat. That word "hap" is a powerful word. We find it only one other time in the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes 2 and 14, where it says, The wise man's eyes were in his head, but the fool walketh in darkness. And I myself perceived also that one event happeneth to them all. That word hap is an Old Testament word that means it just kind of happened. It just kind of worked out. The world has a word it substitutes for that word hap. What the world would call it tonight is the word lucky. But God's people don't use that word. What the world says is lucky, we all know it's God making it happen. And all of a sudden in the middle of Ruth 2 and verse number 3, the entire book of Ruth is going to change. Because what we discover is that when a woman stands at the crossroads and says, my life for the will of God, I go where he wants until I die where he wants. When a woman is willing to say, I forsake my friends, I forsake my family, I forsake my religion, I turn my back on everything and I surrender my life to the will of God. She may be hungry, she may be helpless, she may be hopeless, she may not have a friend in the world. But what we know in the middle of verse number three is there is a God watching it all. And all of a sudden, God is going to make it happen. It's a beautiful thing. You see, there could well be somebody here tonight. I I mean, I may be preaching perhaps to a widow just like Ruth. Maybe somebody in this place, you have given your life to serve the Lord, and now the hair has turned gray, and now there's medical issues. Maybe for somebody, you face great financial pressures, and you say, you know, many years ago, I gave my life to the will of God, and in a place like Grace Baptist Church, I have served Him. A few years ago, my mother went to heaven, having taught the same Sunday school class in the same local church for 52 years. Same class, same church, every Sunday. And maybe somebody like that tonight, you say, Grace Baptist Church, for years now I've been serving the Lord. And why you just go about your business and, you know, you're not the, the, the one crying and moaning and complaining. And you just serve the Lord with a smile on your face. And, and now you come to the point in life where there's burdens and there's medical issues and there's battles and there's physical hardships. And you've come to that place where you say, what happens next and what happens now? Ruth 2.3 is in the Bible for you. Because God wants you to understand that when a lady says, I give my life to the will of God, when a man gets on his knees and says, I give my life to go where he wants me to go, that God in heaven is not going to look the other way. There is a God that knows when somebody is living their life for his will. And Ruth 2 and verse number 3 reminds us that when the need is there, God is not going to abandon his child. God is going to make it happen. I'm preaching to some young people here tonight, maybe some college students here. And you're going to stand at the crossroads of your life. And it's not that there aren't more important decisions to make because there certainly are. But you know, you're going to come to that great crossroads of your life. We're at the age of 18, 20, 22, maybe 24, you have to decide what direction do I go? And what am I going to do with my life? And the lights are going to flash from the world and all the arrows and signs are going to say live for yourself and live for money and live for things and live for pleasure. And then there's going to be that rickety little old sign that says this way to the will of God. And in this building there will be some young people who choose the world who say I want what this world can give me. I want all the toys and I want all the treasures and I want all the pleasures but there's going to be somebody else who says my life for the will of God and what you need to understand is you don't have to start manipulating and pulling strings. You don't have to start making things happen. Because when you say, I don't know where this is going to take me, and I don't know what's going to happen next, what you need to know in Ruth chapter 2, verse number 3, that a broken-hearted lady, a fearful lady, a woman who didn't know where the next meal was coming from, walks out of the house that morning saying, Lord, I need daily bread. I need somebody to show grace upon me. But what she didn't know is that Almighty God was smiling upon her. And God is about ready to make it happen. Notice four things God made happen. Number one, the Bible says it happens to be the right season. Go back to chapter 1, verse 22. They came to Bethlehem and notice when it was. The beginning of barley harvest. It just happens to be the beginning of barley harvest. On our calendar, that would either be late April, it could be early May, but it just happens to be the beginning of barley harvest. It just happened to be. You know why that is important? Because if Ruth and Naomi had come back a week earlier, she never would have met Boaz. And if it was a week later, she wouldn't have met Boaz. The big guy, the owner, the only time he would ever show up out in the harvest field is in the time of harvest. I mean, when the crop is growing, nobody's interested in stealing it. When the crop is already gone, nobody is there. But you know, when it's harvest time, boy, that's where the big guy's got to be there and he's got to be doing the work every day. That's where the owner's got to make sure there's no thievery and there's no stealing. That's where you got to keep a close eye on your business. So had it been a week earlier, had it been a week later, it would have been the wrong season. But you know, that little phrase, that little verse, it kind of looks like, you know, why did God stick that into? the end of chapter one. Who cares if it's the time of barley harvest? But it had to be the right season. It just had to be the time that when Ruth goes to the harvest field, Mr. Boaz is going to be there too. It just happens to be the right season. I mean, if you didn't know any better, we'd have to say the Lord's going to take care of somebody who lives for the will of God.
1: If he didn't know better, you know,
0: I mean, we'd have to say, whoa, you know, when some Moabitus woman says, I'm going to go where God wants and live where God wants my life for the way. I mean, if we didn't know better now, we'd almost think that God's going to smile from heaven and that God's going to guide and direct and lead every one of her steps. I mean, we'd almost think that the Lord's kind of playing chess here, you know, and he's moving the pawn over here and the rook over here and the bishop he throws out of the game and he moves the, I mean, you think the Lord, I mean, you'd almost have to come to the conclusion that the Lord knows what he's doing. The world would say, boy, that was lucky. It was barley harvest. It wasn't luck. It was half. But notice it wasn't just happening to be the right season. Number two, it happens to be the right place. In verse 2, she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers. So you have this massive community field and all kinds of families. Bethlehem's a rather large city, not quite Jerusalem, but it's not a little village either. And so you'd walk out to this massive field. That's how they lived for the entire year. And, I mean, there were family plots that were absolutely everywhere. I guess we're going to have to wait for heaven to find out how this works, you know. I wonder how many fields she went to and got the cold shoulder, you know, and people pretending like she's not there. <coughs> Excuse me, sir. Excuse me, sir. Yeah, what do you want? You know, I'm a widow, and I'm supposed to be able to glean. Do you mind if I glean in the corner? Hey, you have to ask the boss, and he's not going to be here till next Thursday, you know. And she goes said, that. A boss just went for lunch. Come back later. And I wonder how many cold shoulders she had. And I wonder if she was ready to go that direction, but something inside said, nope. you need to go in that direction. And in this massive field where there are all these family plots, do you see what it says? She just happens, she just happens to land on the right piece of ground that is owned by the Boaz family. I mean, this thing is just happening, isn't it? I mean here's a woman that just happens to be barley season and it happens to be the right place but how about this number three it happens to be the right person and it says in verse number three that her hapless delight on the part of the field belonging unto Boaz because here's the key this is what makes the entire story of Ruth work it, it wouldn't matter if Boaz was just a nice guy and he was a nice guy and you know when Ruth walked out of the house that morning she said I need a man that will show me grace and grace my is that ever a word for Boaz he was a kind man he was a gracious man he was a compassionate man there are a lot of adjectives that we could use to describe boaz but none of them would work unless it could say in verse number three that he was of the kindred of elimelech you remember good old elimelech there's a famine in the land he got peace in his heart and he took his family down to moab that elimelech No, the Bible tells us that he was of the same family. Because Ruth walked out of the house thinking, you know what I need today is somebody that will show me grace. And that's the thing, isn't it? Because you and I think we know what we need. And you and I are prone to get on our knees and pray, and we're going to tell the Lord everything we need. But the thing about that is that you think you know what you need, and I think I know what I need, but God really knows what we need. And Ruth would have said that day, I need a man to show me grace. And you can almost hear the Lord laughing at that saying, Ruth, that's not what you need. But what you need is somebody of the Elimelech family. You need somebody that can take care of you. That thought never entered into her mind. But what do you know? Just the right guy happens to show up. Just the right man. Just the right Boaz. Could I stop there? Do you know that Boaz was an old man? Now, I know know we have the Hollywood version of this, right, or the flannel graph story version of this. And I know this thing has been made out to be this great love story. Yet what Hollywood loves, you know, the Bible never says that this was some movie star love story. So we have this most eligible bachelor in town showing up. The guy was 110 years old. Sorry, but you cannot get from Rahab the harlot to Obed, the grandfather of David, without this guy being 100 to 110 years old. In fact, if that were not enough, you know, the Jewish rabbis, the traditional historical people of Israel, so, okay, this is not Bible, take it or leave it, but here's what they wrote in Old Testament histories. They said that the very day in Ruth, and Matthew, or Ruth 1, where Ruth and this woman Naomi come to Bethlehem, that is the day that the wife of Boaz died. They say that he had a number of children, but by the time we get to Ruth chapter 2, all of his heirs are dead. That's what the historian said, so take it or leave it. And I promise you, the other thing they say is that the night Obed was conceived is the night the old man died. And you know, there has to be a reason why at the end of Ruth, Boaz is conspicuous by his absence. But no matter how you look at it, this is not some strapping young man. This is not the most eligible bachelor in town. This is a real old guy. And could I just stop there while we're there? And you know, we've been told and led to believe by Hollywood that Ruth is like the most beautiful young woman there ever was. The Bible never says that. Here's why it's significant. There are 16 times I counted in the Old Testament where God tells us that a woman or sometimes like Job's daughters, a group of women, are beautiful. When that is part of the story, it seems like every time God goes out of his way to tell us how beautiful they are. You know, the Bible never says that Ruth is a beautiful woman. In fact, Boaz is kind of stunned, isn't he? It's that little thing nobody talks about where he says, Ruth, I'm kind of amazed actually that you're interested in an old geezer like me. I mean, you know, you don't care how old the guy is. Boy, she obviously didn't. But, you know, that's part of the story that we're not led to believe because we got this beautiful love story, but, you know, Ruth didn't need the most eligible bachelor in town. What she needed was a relative of Elimelech, who was a man of compassion and mercies, what she needed was a Boaz. The Lord knows what we need better than we think we know what we need. And while we have this version of a love story, I'm so glad that God's a whole lot bigger than Hollywood producers and Hollywood writers who film their films in British Columbia. I'm so glad that God is bigger than the whole mess. I'm so glad that God can look down and say, no, 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 Ruth, you think you know what you need, but I really know what you need. She may not have been the most beautiful woman in world history. And Boaz certainly wasn't the strapping, young, handsome man that we've been led to believe. But then again, when do Hollywood stars and starlets ever do the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God? No, she needed somebody who was of the family of Elimelech. And what do you know? At just the right season, at just the right spot in the field, Just the right guy shows up. And what do you It all happened. How about this? It was the right season. It was the right place. It was the right man. And then it just happens to be the right time. And in verse number four, you'll notice a word. I believe it's found five times in the book of Ruth. It's a little word that you and I never pay attention to. It says, and behold... You know, that word behold is a great word. You know, it keeps popping up in the book of Ruth. I mean, every time where something had to happen, there's that word again. Well, behold, the word behold is kind of like, you know, well, whoever would have thought that was going to happen. The word behold is, you know, of all things, nobody expected that. The word behold is, well, nobody would believe it. But guess who shows up? That word behold reminds us that there is a God behind the scenes that is taking care of this young lady, Ruth. Just like there's a God looking down at a man or a woman who's lost their spouse and And tonight their heart is broken and tonight there's a lot of uncertainties and there's a lot of medical issues and there's a lot of problems. And it says God is looking in this place tonight. It's somebody facing family burdens, somebody else with enormous pressures on the job. Just like God is watching some young college student, maybe a high school student who has come to the crossroads of their life and with their friends saying, I'm living for money and I'm living for stuff and I'm living for pleasure. God has watched some young man or some young lady come to a place like Grace Baptist Church and Bible College. And God has watched somebody give their life to the Lord for the will of God. And if you think God is going to abandon you and toss you away, you got another guest coming here tonight. The Bible tells us that God started to make it happen. It happens to be the right season. It happens to be the right place. It happens to be just the right guy. And what do you know? It just happens to be just the right time. God made it happen. Years ago in my country in the state of Kansas, that's a long time ago now, but there was an old, old preacher named George Young. George Young's just a sweet old gospel preacher, just a great love for the Lord. You know, he's one of those guys smile all the time. His wife was a gracious, gracious, wonderful lady. Maybe the only person sweeter than George Young in Kansas would have been Mrs. Young. And, you know, they were just humble people, and they loved the Lord. And, and George Young would go with his wife to little, little churches around Kansas. I mean, some of these little farming communities, just be a handful of people. And George Young would go, and George Young would preach for them in these churches. And, and, and on the side, he did little carpentry jobs. And, and I mean, this was in the day where literally, and I mean literally, he saved his nickels and his dimes. One day, somebody said, well, loonies or toonies, I guess, you know, whatever. I just like that. I know you probably don't, but I, I He saved his coins, and one day, somebody gave George Young and his wife a little tract of land, and he took the money he had saved, and George Young built a little house for his wife and for himself. I think you and I might laugh and think of it more as an outhouse than a real house, but, but to George Young and his wife, it may as well have been the Taj Mahal. It was move-in day come, and that old preacher stood with his wife in the doorway. That little house, God gave it to him. They stood there holding hands like little married people, just got married, and, and the tears were running down their faces. And George Young and his wife, they started to sing, praise God from whom all blessings flow. They were so thankful for what God had given them. Well, soon it was time to go preach a meeting in a little country church, and George Young and his wife went away for a few days. And, While they were away, a neighbor who hated God, he hated the Bible and he hated George Young, he came and he torched their new little house and he burned it to the ground. That old preacher said he didn't even know and when he came home with his wife, they came over the hill and there was no house there. And he ran ahead of his wife and he said when he got down to the property, he said he got on his knees and the ashes, they were still warm as they fell through his fingers. He said every photo was gone, every family keepsake, everything on this earth they had that they thought mattered was all burnt up and gone. But while George Young was in the midst of that fiery rubble, the Lord gave him some words that he would write down and you and I still sing them tonight. The words that George Young gave us go like this in shady green pastures, so rich and so sweet. God leads his dear children along when the water's cool flow bathes the weary one's feet. God leads his dear children along sometimes on the mount, when the sun shines so bright. God leads his dear children along, but sometimes it's the valley and the darkest of night. God leads his dear children along. The sorrows befall us. And Satan oppose. God leads his dear children along. Through grace we can conquer and defeat all the foe. God leads his dear children along. So away from the mire and away from the clay. God leads his dear children along. away up in glory where eternity is day. God leads his dear children along. Some through the waters. Some through the floods. Some through the fire. But all through the blood. Some through great sorrow, that's when God gives the song in the night season and all the day long. We find a young Ruth the Moabite is standing at the crossroads of her life. She says, I don't know how this is ever going to work out. I may be from the wrong place and I may be the wrong person, but I'm giving my life to the one who spread out his wings and under his wings I'm safely abiding, Ruth 2.12. He said, I'm trusting him as my savior. And if he could stretch out his wings and save my soul, then I can give my life for the will of God, no whatever it costs. Now the Bible tells us the woman who stood at the crossroads and said, I go where he wants. I live where he wants. His people are my people and he is my God until I die. Now she wakes up in the morning hungry and destitute and hopeless and helpless. And with the whole world stacked against her, God's going to start making it happen. Happens to be the right season. It happens to be the right spot. Wouldn't you know it, it happens to be just the right man. And lo and behold, it just happens to be the right time. The rest, as they say, is history. You're going to give your life to the will of God, young man, young lady. That no matter how hard, no matter how pressing, no matter how difficult, no matter how much money it is, no matter what it takes, here's what you know. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. You live your life for the will of God and then the hair turns gray and the battles become different and the medical issues begin to rise. It's old human flesh, like Corinthians says, begins to wear out and it seems awfully lonely and you face the heartache of seeing loved ones go on ahead. Well, if you have lived your life for the will of God, then you know that God is smiling on you tonight. And God's not going to leave you destitute. That little widow back there in Ruth chapter 1 and a little widow tonight in a place like Surrey, British Columbia, the God of heaven loves to make it happen. I need grace. No, sir. You need God.